Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we compare Mormon and creedal Christian thought. Charles Spurgeon today. I've got this book here, The Booming Baritone Bell of England by E.G. Romine. And I just happen to be here with the author himself, Ed. Thank you so much. It's good to be here, Skyler. <laughs> Absolutely. Very good to be here. So grateful you're here. And... Um, you're one of the elders here at FBC Provo. I'll just say that right up front. Yes. And at the end, we, we, we'll come back to this. Who is Charles Spurgeon? Yes. Well, Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in the 19th century or the 1800s. You can think of it like that. And in the 1800s, that was presided over by a queen, Queen Victoria, and so you may hear 1800s England referred to as Victorian England. She reigned for quite a while, and Victoria was beloved as a queen. And Victorian England is very interesting because Victorian England experienced a lot of technological advancements. And this is the context in which this Victorian Baptist preacher found himself. It's in the middle of a technological and economic boom. When Spurgeon was born on June 19, 1834, people were still using a horse and buggy travel around like that or just walking everywhere. And by the time he died on January 31st, 1892, uh, there was a lot of technology that had happened. So Spurgeon was a man of his times, but he was also quite the prophet, if I can use that word in the lowercase sense. Uh, Spurgeon was born out in the country, a little place called Kelvedon, Essex, and it's not a large city at all. You can still go there today. And he is known primarily for being a Baptist pastor and preacher. He pastored only two congregations during his lifetime, the First, for a few years, was Waterbeach Chapel. He became the pastor there when he was 16 years old. And by the time he was 18, 19 years old in 1855, he became the pastor of the church in which he would spend the rest of his ministry. It's called the New Park Street Chapel in London. So you've got this country boy that ended up moving to the big city, which he didn't initially want to do, and he pastored in the big city for the rest of his life. It'd be like me, I'm a native Texan, small town Texan, and God eventually arranging my life to where I pastor in New York City. I would rather have my teeth pulled out without anesthesia than pastor in a place like New York City. But that's what happened to Spurgeon. 
and Spurgeon's popularity almost as soon as he got to the New Park Street just boomed. They were a dying church. They were hoping to get a young preacher in there to give them some life, give them some energy, and the Lord did far more abundantly than they could ask or think. Well, I've talked a little bit about Spurgeon and his preaching and popularity. How did Spurgeon get converted? Well, he was born into a Christian family that did not make him a Christian, and Spurgeon would agree with that sentiment, but he was born into a Congregationalist family. So think about it. They were Calvinistic, uh, meaning that they believed in the doctrines of grace, the five points of Calvinism. They were Pado Baptist, so they baptized babies. Mm-hmm. And then they also had a congregational form of government, hence their name. They allowed the congregation to make the majority of the decisions. Rather, <coughs> excuse me, rather than the bishopric or the presbytery overseeing everything. So that's the context into which Spurgeon was born and raised. And his father, John Spurgeon, instilled within him a great love for the Bible, even at a young age. And then There was a period of time in his life, we don't know exactly the reasons why, but Spurgeon was sent off to live with his grandparents, Hmm. and his grandfather was a pastor himself and an avid reader of the Puritans. And little boy Spurgeon would love to go up into his grandfather's library and just pour himself over the Puritans. One of his favorite works was John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Um, He read that work over a hundred times. There's allusions to it all in his preaching where he talks about different characters from the allegory. And he also really liked Bunyan's Holy Wars as well. And Spurgeon thought that that was actually a better allegory than Pilgrim's Progress. Interesting. Um, which I actually agree with with Spurgeon there. The the Holy War typifies uh, like a spiritual battle, and you actually see the saints of God in the allegory going to war, defending a city. And uh, it's a really interesting uh, work and read, and Spurgeon just immersed himself in the writings of various Puritans like Owen, uh, Baxter, although there's controversy nowadays with Richard Baxter. Um, You know, Sips, a Church of England divine. Uh, Just all these old school 17th century men, Spurgeon swam in. So all that to say, Schuyler, Spurgeon was building for himself a vast reservoir of theology that when he was converted, it was like a fire that had already been 
prepped and just needed the flame to just explode. That's fascinating. Is there, tell the listener about his conversion. Yes. And, and how that influenced also his theological position and how that differed from his growing up. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So Spurgeon uh, was an avid churchgoer even before his conversion. He had a respect for spiritual things. And even though he was a good young man outwardly, uh, he would always have the sense because of the theology that he knew and read that he was a sinner. And he wrestled with the fact that that he was not converted. And there was one particular instance. Spurgeon scholars debate about when this happened and who it happened because with because there's some discrepancy in Spurgeon's own writings and testimonies as he told it over the years about when it happened. But we know that it was during a snowstorm in in uh, England. He couldn't get to his normal congregationalist congregation. The snowstorm was so bad that he actually had to pull off and go to a primitive Methodist chapel. And uh, the preacher, the the pastor of that chapel, the normal preacher couldn't make it himself. The storm was so bad that he was just snowed in. And last minute, no doubt, a layman got up to preach. And he preached the passage from Isaiah, um, which says, Look unto me, all, all you who need to look unto me and be saved is essentially what what it says. And throughout the throughout the sermon, this preacher just said, Look, 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 look unto Christ, look under unto Christ. That's all he kept saying. Is just different exhortations to look and keeping to spin that. And then at one point, I guess he ran out of sermon material. There wasn't a lot of people in the congregation. And he noticed young Spurgeon at about 14 years old. And he looked right at him. And he said, young man, you look miserable. And you will be miserable if you do not obey my text. Look unto Christ. And it was at that moment Spurgeon would say, the scales fell from my eyes. And Spurgeon says, I looked until I couldn't look anymore. And it was that day that he went home joyous and just told everybody, kind of like the woman at the well. <laughs> and Spurgeon uh, was filled with joy, and he immediately started doing zealous things for the Lord, like handing out tracts and, and conversational evangelism. And and uh, it was through his simple reading of the New Testament that he became convicted of Baptist convictions. And one funny little story that kind of gives you some quintessential Spurgeon, his mother, when he became a Baptist, said, Charles... 
I'm sure glad the Lord saved you, but I never knew he would make you a Baptist. <laughs> and Spurgeon replied to him, Mother, God is able to give you far more than what you ask or think. <laughs> so that story is extra funny yeah. considering the context of our podcast. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a conservative Baptist, you're a conservative Bible-believing Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. No, what, what is, um, for, for those who, who don't know, what is some of the denominational milieu that he is operating within as a <laughs> Baptist? Um, you know, what's the nature of Victorian Christianity at the time? The established church dominates the day. And if you don't know what that is, dear listener, the established church is the Church of England. So we don't have to delve into the history of it and all that, but essentially in the 17th century, the, the king of the time got really, really upset with the Roman Catholic Church and decided to marry and start his own denomination. That's really oversimplified, mm-hmm. but you've got the... Church of England that had a wonky start. I think everybody would agree with that. And they they had been going on up until this time, the 19th century. And in the 17th century, in the 1600s, Baptists and, and Presbyterians and Congregationalists, primarily those three denominations, were very much persecuted by the Church of England because in the 17th century to not be a member of the Church of England meant a lot more than just being a, a theological knothead. You were being a political nuisance as well because to not baptize your baby and to be a part of the state church, the established church, was to be in political rebellion. So the nickname that Congregationalists, Baptists, and Presbyterians got during that time were the dissenters. They were dissenting from the norm. They were going against the grain, as it were. And so with the 19th century, relations had died down quite a bit. Um, Early on, in Spurgeon's life in the 19th century, Baptists were still not allowed to go after Parliament. I believe that changed later on. I don't fact-check me on that. I'm very sure that's the case. Um, but that being said, they weren't being persecuted to the same degree, same level. <clears throat> but there was still a religious superiority if one was a part of the Church of England because you were a part of the established church, you were going with the flow. And so for Spurgeon to have the, humanly speaking, success that he did as a uh, dissenting church, as a nonconformist church, um, then that is essentially... The, the beauty and the miracle of Spurgeon is that this 
small town English boy was able to make such an impact. Not, and I would say, and I think Spurgeon would agree with me, it wasn't all in Spurgeon's power, but it was how God used him. Mm-hmm. So does that answer your question? No, for sure. And um, what, just for the listener, um, what, give us a sense of the impact he had. I mean, he's, he is one of the first names I heard coming into Christianity, right? But it was just one of those names where, like, it's so um, overly normal. I had no sense of who he was, his context, you know, all that. But you, even just before we started uh, recording, you were telling me, I mean, he had virtually global influence, right, by the time he died. Correct, correct. Um, on all three... Uh, major continents. Wow. Uh, and they're printing his know, sermons and mm-hmm, right? printing his sermons and, and um, sermons being read on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean for sure, uh, translated in, in the multiple languages. And to think that he had such an influence without the aid of our modern technology. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no social media. Yeah. Um, there, there was no Googling. There wasn't even the YouTube. Mm-hmm. And so for Spurgeon to be able to have the influence that he did, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. So when, when his sermons uh, started being printed in 1855, what, what would happen is that Spurgeon w- would preach his sermon, and, and when he preached, he would have um, folks in the congregation that would essentially write down everything that they heard him say. And then at the end of that, Spurgeon would collect all those copies edit it into a final copy, get the best one, send it off to the newspapers that would be printed the following week. It was called the Penny Pulpit. <laughs> and uh, the word I was looking for, stenographer. Uh, he would have stenographers in, in his congregation that would write down what he said. And then that would become the sermon after he edited them. How, how many, and I've, I've seen some of your library, but, I mean, do you have almost everything <laughs> that we have published? I mean, how many volumes are we talking about here? If he's oh, doing sermons weekly. Yep, yeah, and not, those 63 volumes don't even contain everything. Wow, 63 is what we have, and then there's, was it called the Lost ser- or Forgotten Sermons? Or? Yeah, so... The 63-volume set goes under two names. Okay. Uh, the first six volumes are known as the New Park Street Pulpit. Okay. And starting with volume seven, the name switches to the Metropo- Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. Mm. And the reason why the name change is in the 1860s, uh, Spurgeon essentially had a fundraiser to build a bigger building in the heart 
of London because this congregation was too big for the old chapel that they always had. And so with the change of the name, Skyler, it, it really shows um, a, a bit of the history. So, so here's an example. The new Park Street pulpit changed the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Why Metropolitan? Because people from all over the world came to hear him preach. <laughs> and then um, the reason why Baptist is not, not in the name is because uh, the city of London didn't want him to have Baptist in the name. That's fascinating. Yeah, so so weird little laws there. I forget uh, which brother I know told me that. I want to say it's Ray Rhodes, who's another Spurgeon scholar. Um, I could be mistaken on that. So if it's not you, Ray, I'm sorry. But <laughs> uh, but in the 1860s, the name was changed and another building was built. But it's the same congregation fascinating essentially that building's still there yes it was bombed a few times so it's it's a shell of what it once was because mm. uh, they've rebuilt it. it was the last bombing i think was in world war Two. Oh yeah 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 so wow so i mean they rebuilt it peter masters is the main preaching pastor there now and He's a stalwart preacher and preaches the gospel and the doctrines of God's sovereign grace and doing wonderful things. Wow. So. I um, Just the sense of the bibliography of this guy is incredible, right? So what I've got down here and add more or whatever, he edited a monthly magazine. Yep. We mentioned the published sermons weekly. He's uh, He founds a college. Mm-hmm. Pastor's College. Pastor's College, yeah. He founds an orphanage. Correct. It's just, I mean... One for boys and one for girls. <laughs> yeah, back then they those existed, right? Um, I'm just kidding. There <laughs> yep. were boys and girls still in Victorian England. That's um, right. So, and then he's, I mean, he his influence has to have an impact in terms of what the acceptance, the... Um, people taking more seriously the particular Baptist position on both sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. Right. Um, that's, it's just, yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> it's his influence. What, um, just so some people, um, well, let me, let me put it this way. If I were trying to get someone a sense of Augustine, you know, I'd find a few quotes to just show them, because you, after you get into this rhythm, there's a music to Augustine that you yes. just, oh, that sounds so Augustinian, right? Yes. <laughs> and Calvin has it. Calvin has such a good Augustinian mode at times. Right. As, of course, he was a huge um, student of Augustine's. Um, what are some examples of Spurgeon's style? Um, I, and I have in mind people that, on one hand, would not know the obvious ones that everyone might know. Mm-hmm. But then what are some of the, you like that are lesser known but are so good. Yeah. I'll give you my favorite Spurgeon quote. Okay. This is number one. There's difficulty in everything except eating pancakes. 
<laughs> the humor there. Yes. <laughs> That's I mean, another thing you probably should have said. He's also really, he's passionate, clear, bold, and funny. Yes. He's, he's a funny guy. Yeah, very funny, very funny. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some more here. Okay. These are more theological. Jesus Christ is not only a savior for sinners, but he is food for them after they are saved. Mm. I'll give you another one. Yeah. If there is one season in which the soul gets into closer communion with Christ than another, it is at the Lord's table. Mm. That's Baptist saying that. Mm-hmm. We need to get back to some of that uh, theology of the Lord's Supper as Protestants. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful for Baptist Presbyterians that are putting a right emphasis upon uh, the Lord's Supper nowadays. And Spurgeon had it. Here's another one. Ordinary closet prayer will only make ordinary Christians of us. <laughs> another one. I really like this one. The infinite became an infant. Mm. I'm going to repeat that and try yes. to enunciate. I got a big Texas accent. <laughs> All the Utah and listeners probably can't hear a distinction I'm trying to make. <laughs> so the infinite became an infant. Uh, that'll That's preach. good. That's good. One I like that you had in your book, What Christ Bought with Blood you cannot buy with gold. Mm. Oof. It's just <laughs> oh, man. so good. There's another one you included that I'll throw in here. Yeah. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without f- any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir, then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Amen. <laughs> I, I've so... said that to my preaching students. Yeah. <laughs> Because Christ is what makes a talk a Christian sermon. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. There's um, one I'll put in the show notes that I listen to, and I'd encourage the listeners. I mean, the, I'm assuming this YouTube channel has dozens at least of Spurgeon's full sermons yes. read. There's one he gave January 11th, 1857 on Exodus 17, 9 called the war of truth. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll put that as if someone wants a sermon, a full sermon to listen to, it's well worth your time. Yes. I'll, I'll give you one more. Yes. The more vile a man is, the more eagerly I invite him to believe in Jesus. A sense of sin is all we have to look for as ministers. Mm. (laughs) Spurgeon was a Jesus-centered preacher. And that's that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love him. Yeah. What what do you think of um, the criticism? I'm sure you've heard it way more than even I, and I found it a few times just in prepping for this that he's not an expositional preacher, mm-hmm. uh, how would you interact with, with that? Having done work, significant work in this book, for example, um, on his hermeneutic and, and how it influenced how he preached. 
I, I would say that they need to read Spurgeon more deeply. And, and here is what I mean by that. If you delve into the 63-volume set, and by the way, they've been out of print for a while, Reformation Heritage Books, in partnership with Midwestern Seminary, is making them available for the public again. All 63 volumes. <laughs> so, dear Christian listener, when when they come out, uh, set aside uh, uh, some of your money you'd spend at Chili's or wherever <laughs> to buy this set. Uh, one German theologian said, sell all that you have and buy Spurgeon. <laughs> but uh, w- with that said... Uh, um, when you read the 63 volumes, you'll notice starting at about volume, I want to say 17, you'll start noticing that the publishers decided to include not only the sermons proper, but also what he called expositions, which was another event in the worship service where Spurgeon would read aloud a text, a verse, comment on it, and then go to the next verse within a pericope, Hmm. within a unit of thought, and comment upon it. And it was much more verse by verse. I would even argue in some instances where his sermons tended to be more allegorical in line with like a Craig Carter great tradition, his expositions at times almost went more towards a a historical grammatical hermeneutic rather than an allegorical great tradition hermeneutic. Spurgeon was a practitioner of both. So I I think it's really interesting to think about Spurgeon and the current hermeneutic debate between how much allegory is necessary, how much in biblical backgrounds is necessary, and on and on that discussion goes. But Spurgeon really shows, to go back to your point, and that he can go line by line and follow the content and contour of a text. So he oftentimes didn't exposit in the sense that we would think about it in his sermon proper. So I could see why people think that. But people forget, or maybe they just don't know, that he had set aside time in the worship service for commentary on Scripture, which actually looked closer to like a nine Marxian verse-by-verse expository preaching. Gotcha, gotcha. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I probably should have said this for any LDS listeners we have, that because they will have no background in any sort of preaching right. at all, let alone verse-by-verse expositional um, right. preaching. But what we mean is going through, an, um, I guess, verbally exegeting a text. Would you say that's a good way to explain that well, to someone who has no background in yeah, Christian preaching? Is it okay if I disagree with a little please, bit of your wording on please, there? Absolutely, please. Okay, so 
So I would not use the word exegeting. Okay. Because exegeting deals specifically with the, like, the study of a text in preparation to exposit. Awesome. So yeah. when you're doing exegesis, you're doing grammar studies, you're doing word studies, you're looking at the original languages, you know, regard, depending on which testament you're in. And so what I tell my preacher boys, my students, is like, you don't want to bring your exegesis into the pulpit. Mm. You'll make people fall asleep. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of young preacher boys do that. They'll get into the weeds of, of you know, the valve consecutive used in Exodus 5 or, you know, whatever. Um, and congregations don't necessarily need that. But they do need the fruit of your exegesis. Mm. That that God will use. Gotcha. Change hearts and minds. Absolutely. So anyway, that being no, said. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What are um, some of the major theological controversies that Spurgeon was involved in? <clears throat> yeah. Well, the first controversy, I'll give you three. Okay. Uh, the first controversy... Uh, was really more of a personal one. When he got to London, people despised him because of his age. And uh, he he had to uh, fight to get used to, I mean, the culture of the big city. And, uh, you know, people thought that he was just a passing fad at first. Like everybody was, you know, hooping and hollering over the, Boy Preacher from the Fins. Uh, the first biography written on Spurgeon, and this goes back to your other question, you know how old he was I, I don't. when he had a biography written on him? <laughs> this is going to blow your mind. How old? The first biography was written by a man named E.L. Magoon when Spurgeon was 21. No way. And that's right. Most people hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> lived enough life, you know. You know, when when I was twenty one, you could you could write all my biography on the back of this credit card right here, you know. <laughs> yeah. Wow! But if you look at Magoon's biography, it's just incredible that he had enough material on this twenty one year old boy. Hmm. And he had. Uh, Another one come out at age twenty two, and just a lot of small biographies over over the next period of time. People were infatuated with him, so naturally, people thought, "Oh, this is just a fad; it'll go away." Well, um, he didn't. He earned the respect of the populace over time, and and that was that. Um, but. As far as controversy proper, the first big one he got into was um, the baptism regeneration controversy by 1864-ish. Okay. And what that was is, is Spurgeon took the uh, teachings of, of the Church of England, particularly a man named Edward Pusey, and um, to task where they believed that the waters of baptism 
had regenerative power. The waters of baptism could actually regenerate a soul. And Spurgeon didn't much like that. He thought, I think rightly, that, uh, well, baptism doesn't have any regenerative power. Uh, that's, that's not what regenerates a man. Uh, Spurgeon did believe baptism saves in other senses, like I think every Christian ought to believe, in terms of sanctification as a means of grace to help us to persevere to the end. Uh, we're saved in that way from baptism. But baptism does not regenerate. Uh, that's why the Westminster can say, you know, baptism now saves you. Now, you know, we could, we could have debate about who is to get baptized, but I think Spurgeon would agree with both of us in that baptism is a means of grace that helps carry one forward in their walk with Christ. So, with, with that said, Spurgeon had damning things to say about the Church of England. He just wasn't very nice at all. <laughs> um, didn't use good language. There, There's a sermon preached actually titled Baptism Regeneration. Hmm. Uh, you can look that up, Baptism Regeneration Spurgeon sermon. Just read through that sermon, and you, you'll see how heated it was. And, and then... Secondly, and this is the biggest controversy, is the downgrade, or thirdly, rather, is the downgrade controversy. And this is the one that uh, a lot of Spurgeon scholars say, say contributed to his, uh, humanly speaking, early death at the age of 57 um, because it took a toll on him. Uh, just the just the denial of the Bible as the inerrant Word of God, the denial of everlasting punishment. Um, you know, German higher criticism infiltrating the interpretation and the hermeneutic of the Scriptures. So, therefore, saying. Things like, oh, Christ really didn't rise from the dead. Oh, you can't really believe those miracle stories. They only have a spiritual meaning. They didn't really happen. Uh, Spurgeon, I believe, was fighting the seed form of what would become the social justice gospel in the 1900s. Mm. Uh, he never knew that terminology. Right, didn't live long but, enough. But but if but if you look at what he was fighting and the way he was fighting it, uh, he was prepping everybody else to fight well. Yeah. And the Baptist Union of which he had been a part for most of his entire ministry, uh, he finally decided to part ways because they believed he was too much of an old fuddy-duddy. You use a really technical <laughs> academic term, right? Yeah, I think I saw that in your dissertation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, uh, 
they may revoke my PhD now <laughs> no, if they hear no this way. podcast. Yeah. For for those who don't have a Baptist background, describe what a union like this would be so that we can kind of see why it would be such a big deal for Spurgeon to leave it. Yep. So basically it was a fellowship of like-minded churches. Okay. Uh, and they would get together, support missions, fellowship, encourage, have conferences. Would it be similar to uh, the SBC? Better. At least, at least in form? Yes, better because it was smaller. Gotcha. Um, and I don't mind if this goes public. Uh, the founders of the SBC never meant for the SBC to get as large as it has. Gotcha. It's very big. Gotcha. So it's the, a, an association for cooperation. Right. Like there's no you, authority. You can think of it more like, more like an association nowadays. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So rather than the national convention. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, there's no overarching authority. So there's no like presbytery. There's no bishop or, or general assembly. Archbishop. Yep, yep. So there's no power of enforcement going the other way. But it's I guess at the time there was not a doctrinal statement other than the the view on baptism, right? Uh, there would have been. Okay. Spurgeon, Spurgeon essentially said, "You're not being faithful to." To, to, to the statement that's supposed to bind us together. Gotcha. And so the Metropolitan Tabernacle being an independent uh, church decided to leave. Gotcha. And, and so it was and, a trying time for Spurgeon. Yeah, one, it, it looks like they... I, it, first it became... And I guess, what did they call it? The new thought or the new theology, right? Like you already said, the higher criticism, mm-hmm. Darwin's impact. Um, yep. I guess just so the listener catches this, this is influencing preaching. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not just, oh, this is out there. <laughs> what Spurgeon is aiming at is this is influencing ministry right. in the right. association. And... Um, and it got to the point where he thought the only way he could oppose it was leaving, right? Would that be fair Cor- to state? Correct, correct. There is a good article that my brain just remembered, and I want to um, show it and share it with the listeners. Yes. Uh, it's simply called The Downgrade Controversy, I believe. And the author... There's a fellow Spurgeon scholar by the name of Alex De Prima. Okay. And the title of the article is actually, What Was the Downgrade Controversy All About? What Was the Downgrade Controversy All About? Okay. And in the middle of that article, this is what Alex says. Here we see that Spurgeon was concerned that some within the denomination were either flirting with or in some cases openly promoting the following the following errors. Number one, the denial of the infallibility of Scripture. And I would also say inerrancy as well. The distinction there being... Uh, Inerrancy meaning that the Bible does not err, 
infallibility, meaning that it cannot err. And so, a little bit of a distinction, but yeah. they lay right on top of each other. Number two, the denial of the necessity and substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement. And that's a big one for evangelical that's Christians. Huge. Um, number three, the denial of the existence and eternality of hell. Number four, the affirmation of universalism, <laughs> meaning that everybody goes to heaven. Yeah. Um, it's just amazing to think that this would be impacting the preaching in an yeah. association like this. I mean, all these denominations had it, right? It's amazing um, even studying the Presbyterian controversy, for example, how much of an impact that what we would call liberalism here, mm-hmm. although anachronistic at the time, uh, was impacting the actual preaching of the scriptures right. in church services. Yep. And, and to tag on to that, German higher criticism, where did it start? Not in the churches, but in Tübingen University in Germany. So it's a lesson and a, for all of us and a, and a reminder to me, somebody that dabbles in the academy a little bit, that what happens in the halls of the academy theologically will find its way into churches if the churches are not careful. And I, and I even think uh, what happens in the universities culturally and socially will creep their way into the churches. Mm-hmm. Think about like various forms of what's commonly called wokeism, you know, woke ideologies. Uh, we, we've seen some of that uh, creep into churches from time to time, and, and, and it's important for pastors and preachers and missionaries and evangelists not to let that stuff in our churches and Spurgeon did what he felt he had to do at the time because he had started fighting this I believe around the 1870s but it all came in the head or to a head by the next decade he felt he had to leave it's like Alex DePrima says here um, first all four of these issues are doctrinal issues. They're teaching issues. And preaching is teaching on fire. So, of yeah. course, it's going to affect the preaching of churches. Secondly, the Primer says, not only are they doctrinal, but they are matters of basic Christian orthodoxy. Right, all four of those, I think, are just... Yeah. I, I think even what Roman Catholic Catechism would be right there. I mean, yeah. there's some form of substitution. They say scriptures infallible and inerrant, hell existing as eternal conscious torment, and we can't be universalist and be like, I don't, right? <laughs> like, how, how do you look at G, even Jesus's teaching and come out with everyone's going to be okay in the end? Right. I mean, it's it's amazing that this is. And well, I, I, let me let me say that in the the Dalimore bio that you recommended, I guess once he withdrew, his a lot of major donors 
uh, withdrew support from his orphanage, right. his college. Um, he gets criticized publicly, mm-hmm. though he's the more most famous of all of them. I'm sure yep. some of these were famous in their time. Yep. Um, they still try to kind of pressure him or get him to come back in. His own um, brother was against him. Wow. I, I just want, when you say it took a toll on him, I mean, this was a there was a major cost to this decision to leave. Right. Yeah. The premise uh, says something here that I think is um, very very helpful. Um, he says this. Many of these disagreements with his peers in the Baptist Union over social and political issues were often private though sometimes public. At times, they came to represent deep personal differences, yet none of these matters ever precipitated a serious division or schism between Spurgeon and his denomination. Spurgeon simply would not allow it to be so. And that quote is in dealing with with those on which he had theological disagreement, mm-hmm. but they didn't deny the core aspects of the faith. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of these folks that he kept in fellowship with, guess what? They were Arminians. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this Baptist Union, most of which claim to be Calvinistic, but they are disagreeing with um, the tenets of the faith contradicting, I would argue, their very Calvinism. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. The, the, he publishes a series of articles. Is his magazine called The Sword and the Trowel? Yes. Is that his magazine? So he publishes, of course, the initial one called The Downgrade, and then he has others um, kind of expanding on it. Um, freak, you know, frequent... Listeners to this show will know we're a fan of Jay Gressa Machen. There, there's some lines in the in his articles here. They remind me so much of, of Machen. Here's one. Yeah. What other truth is to be the object of contempt? A new religion has been originated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese. And then, there's quintessentially Spurgeon. And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and on this plea usurps pulpits, which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted, the inspiration of Scripture is derided, the Holy Ghost is degraded into an influence, the punishment of sin is turned into a fiction, and the resurrection into a myth, and yet these enemies of our faith expect us to call them brethren and maintain a confederacy with them. (laughs) Wow! That <laughs> so what you should really say is Machen reminds you of Spurgeon. Maybe so. May I, you know, I that that would be a historical question. I wonder. I I wonder if Daryl Hart's biography notes any influence. I'm sure. Of course, he would have known him. Right. But wow, that is just and it. It's um, chilling to think that this is still. This is still the issue. Are we Christian or not? On one level, right. Right. And, and of course, then among believing Christians, it's how to balance the the robust confessional distinctives that right. we have 
with the mere Christianity impulse that wants fellowship with as much as possible. <laughs> In terms of his temperament, I was struck by how so much of, like John Clifford, who was, I guess, the president of the union at the time, right? so much of the criticism of Spurgeon was on his temperament and mm-hmm. lack of tolerance. I don't know if you have um, something to say there about him. I was thinking, particularly in your book, when you covered his view of Rome, which yes. was a lot more nuanced than I was expecting, because, yes, he'll, he'll use terms like antichrist. Like, even on baptismal regeneration, he'll, he'll use a term like heresy. But then he has these other quotes from, I guess, a trip to Belgium, I think it was. Yep. Um, do you want to talk about that to kind of... Was, uh, how um, would you describe Spurgeon's temperament toward other Christians? Yes, he, he was a Catholic, as I am and as you are. Mm-hmm. Now, before everybody turns off the podcast and shouts blasphemy, listen to me. When, when I say Catholic, I mean in the truest sense of the word. He was universal. He had a spirit of Catholicity, meaning that anybody who affirmed the fundamentals of the faith, the essentials of the faith, Old, mature Spurgeon learned to love them and cherish them. And in so doing, uh, you, you will notice a sharp change from the way in which young, more immature Spurgeon of the New Park Street talked about Armenians, talked about Roman Catholics, versus what he said uh, in his more mature ministry later on. I've got to quote my dissertation in chapter 2 where, where Spurgeon actually says that he changed his mind about the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> and uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. Is it that I have been struck lately? Yeah, quote. go ahead and read that. Yeah, yeah. Me. So this is, um, let's see here, MTP 4785. Correct. I have been struck lately in reading works by some writers who belong to the Romish church with the marvelous love which they have towards the Lord Jesus Christ. I did think at one time that it could not be possible for any to be saved in that church. But often, after I have risen from reading the books of those holy men and have felt myself to be quite a dwarf by their side, I have said, yes, despite their errors, these men must have been taught of the Holy Spirit. Notwithstanding all the evils of which they have drunk so deeply, I am quite certain that they must have had fellowship with Jesus or else they could not have written as they did. Yep. You I've, go, I've yes. got a footnote right now. Or two, if you don't mind reading. Yes, is it uh, Spurgeon's um, admission was after his visit to Antwerp, Belgium. Even though Spurgeon admitted to the possibility of true Christians within Roman Catholicism, he did not approve of the idolatry he witnessed at Antwerp. And um, there's a quote you include from his autobiography. And then I like your comment on this, if you don't mind me reading you. Uh, Spurgeon felt that even though, quote, such writers are few and far between, this is Spurgeon. There is a remnant according to the election of grace, even in the midst of that apostate church. 
end quote. Though Spurgeon softened on his stance towards Roman Catholicism and even admired some of the, the church's theologians, he still regarded Rome as a religion that puts Christ off the throne and sets up a man who calls himself infallible. So the, it's, it's just interesting to me how he nuanced his criticism relative to some of the theology that he had uh, read. Right. right. Is that the, what you wanted yep. me to read there? Do you, who do you think he was reading? Can't prove this, but I think he was reading Thomas of Aquinas. <laughs> it's just interest. It's so interesting. I I wish, uh, like, uh, we knew he, what was in his library. <laughs> I know his library was what twelve thousand well, books or something. He, like he that. did own uh, like the Summa Theologicae. He did. I'm pretty dang sure. Wow. Well, you would know, so, right? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't have every book he's ever gotten memorized, but yeah. Uh, I, I know for a fact, too, I wish I'd researched this um, more deeply, but I know for a fact in his magnum opus, a seven-volume commentary on the Psalms called The Treasury of David, Spurgeon actually uh, footnotes uh, Thomas Aquinas. Wow. Um, but, you know, some don't think he's worth reading. Mm-hmm. And appropriating, and you know that sounds uh, mature. Spurgeon would not had would not have agreed with uh, the mindset of some today that, to not read the medieval theologians, mm-hmm. uh, because Spurgeon was a student first and foremost of the Puritans, and the Puritans and the reformers knew the medieval theologians forward and backwards. Mm-hmm. They knew the early church fathers forward and backwards, and they used that knowledge to their advantage to say, hey, look, Rome, we are the true Catholics. You are the one that's left Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And Spurgeon, in the vein of being a true Catholic, wanted to embrace those who absent absolutely loved the Lord Jesus Christ and stood for truth. And it doesn't mean I'm going to go out and become a Roman Catholic tomorrow. I'm not. I'm convictionally Protestant. And when I meet a Roman Catholic, one of the first things I ask them is, uh, do do you affirm the Council of Trent? Most of them don't even know what that is. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You ask them. Yeah, and and I witness to to Roman Catholics because I think the vast majority of them do not know the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. as they ought to know Him, and uh, Spurgeon would agree, and he would say that they've got to love the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. But you see, theological humility is part to admit. I used to paint all Rome with a broad brush. I've learned not to do that. Yeah. So so, so that's yeah. a lesson that we can learn from Spurgeon. Have theological humility. Learn to say I'm wrong and I've changed my mind. Yeah. Anyway, that's no, and, and more yet, for your last question. No, no, for sure. And, uh, and yet knowing where to draw the line, such as, I don't know, is Scripture God's word? Right. 
to, to have the, you know, ecumenistic impulse, but not take it so far is to not have a backbone like Spurgeon himself did. It's the mature right. Spurgeon that said that, that also is the one standing up in the downgrade controversy. That's right. That's a very good point. Yeah, That's and right. I, I love this, uh, his, um, when they were trying to get him back in, I just wanted to include this, uh, another um, Machen alert. Um <laughs> And, and very fitting when we deal with LDS. I love this line that Spurgeon wrote. Where two sets of men are diametrically opposite in their opinions upon vital points, no form of words can make them one. <coughs> <laughs> you know, it would just be a linguistic trick, you know, to say, oh, you know, let's word it this way, we can all agree. Right. When he knows, you know, there's ministers preaching more Darwin than uh, than Job. Um Right. So this, anyway, these are some, that's a huge one. And I, I really appreciate um, going through that. Here's one that would be more particular for this audience. Does Spurgeon have any interaction with Mormonism? <laughs> yes. I mean, this is yep. not the kind of thing that you're going to find, right, right, in just some standard biography or yes. whatever. Right, right. So let me save... From the get-go, uh, in the 19th century, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints did not call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, they referred to themselves as Mormon, and so did everybody else. So you're going to hear Spurgeon use the term Mormon, Mormonism, Mormonite. Uh, that's his words and his context. And as we read through these and discuss them, you've got to keep in mind he's a relative contemporary of the early Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he's interacting with the LDS Church as a world-famous, influential, Bible-believing thoroughly Protestant Christian. So, with that said, the the first quote that I want to read just simply shows that he's aware of the LDS faith. And most of these are pretty long, and I want to tell you where they're at so you can look them up yourself, read the whole sermon in context. This first quote is from a sermon preached on August 6, 1882, entitled, The Head and the Body. The Head and the Body. Spurgeon says this, I am afraid that there are many people whose religion comes to them according to what they call luck. And the luck in the text is in air quotes. They happen to be born in a certain street, and their parents attended a particular place of worship, so they believed what was there taught. But if the dice had fallen in some other way, they might have been Mohammedans. That's an old school way to say Muslim or Islamic. They might have been Mohammedans or Mormonites or Roman Catholics or God knows what for they have not any solid reasons for believing what they are supposed to believe. 
they hold it, as it were, by a kind of chance, and they are quite ready to let it go again if, quote-unquote, chance should so arrange. Hmm. So you can see there, he's not talking about Mormonism directly, but he uses uh, Mormonism, or what you would say nowadays, the LDS Church, as an example of people believing something but not really having the solid foundation of the Holy Bible Mm -hmm. underneath them. So he's really going after this idea of, of just believing what you believe because you were raised with it and not really backing up your belief with a firm conviction that Scripture is our final authority for matters of life and practice. So that that's the first quote there. you have any comment? Uh, just fascinating yeah. to think he's, once again, he's born 1834, dies 1892. He's, this is 1882. Right, right. So and, old Spurgeon. Yeah, he's saying than, this. Than the biography quote, actually, I think. Wow. So, yeah. so 1880s. It's fascinating. The only to try to put on the map a Mormon figure. I mean, those some of the quotes earlier in the interview from the 50, 1850s. Mm-hmm. That's Brigham Young's time, right? So he's right. he's preaching about at the same time Brigham Young is you know preaching Michael God or whatever mm-hmm. in a different tabernacle. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, in terms of lifespan, he just happened to live a lot longer. It would be kind of like uh, Joseph F. Smith, who, um, let, let me double check this really quick, who was born in 1838, so four years later, but he ended up living till 18 or 1918. Right. So he just lived to a try fuller to, life. Right. He lived a lot longer. Yeah. So, anyway, he's what's, what's incredible about some of these quotes as you, as you keep going is he's seeing this happen. Right. Like, in the, in the as it's happening. It's amazing. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, the, just to give our dear LDS listeners a kind of a timeline that they would appreciate. Yeah. Book of Mormon, 1830. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to 1837, the first, I'm going to say Mormon missionaries, because it rolls off the tongue well, and that's what they would have called themselves back then. So uh, the first Mormon missionaries on the shores of England, 1837. Wow. So pretty early after the publishing of the Book of Mormon and the founding of the of the Church of Christ officially, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have this early onset of the Mormon missionaries to England. Joseph Smith died in 1844, correct? Correct. That would have put Spurgeon as a ten as a ten year old boy, I think we did the mm-hmm. math, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can call me a math dummy on there. It won't <laughs> offend good. me at all. You're good. But uh but Listen to this next quote. Okay. Keep in mind, Mormon missionaries, 
From a sermon called Gospel Missions, preached on April 27th, 1856. Spurgeon says, Take again the increase of Mormonism. What has been its strength? Simply this, the assertion of power from heaven. That claim is made, and the people believe it, And now they have missionaries in almost every country of the habitable globe. And the Book of Mormon is translated into many languages. Though there never could be a delusion more transparent or a counterfeit less less skillful and more lying, L-Y-N-G, upon the very surface, Yet the simple pretension to power has been the means of carrying power with it. So you can tell Spurgeon is not a fan of Mormonism. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spurgeon is not a fan of the Book of Mormon. And what he's saying in this quote is that it's the assertion of power. It's the mere claim that has fueled the rapid growth of the then Mormon church. And so what you have, 1837 to 1856, I think that's almost 20 years, correct? Mm -hmm. So 19 years, Mm -hmm. give or take. So (laughs) 19 years. In that time. (laughs) In that time. Mm -hmm. Without the internet, Mm -hmm. their feet touch the English beach. They get off their boats because they didn't have airplanes yet. Um, And uh, it made its way. He says, Mormon missionaries, almost every country of the globe. And then... The Book of Mormon is translated into many languages. I wonder how many the many is there. Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head. That is fascinating, though. Yeah. Yeah, that, that'd be a cool research question. Yeah. But his point is there's something to the rapid growth. Mm-hmm. And Spurgeon did not think it was the Holy Spirit. Right, the pretense of power. Yes, the pretense of power. Okay. Well, this next one I think is fascinating. This is the longest quote clip. This is a year before, in 1855, of August 19th, in a sermon entitled, What Are the Clouds? What Are the Clouds? Spurgeon says, A little while ago, some of us were fretting about this Mormonism. And we said, quote, it will never be broken up, unquote. Some stupid fellas in America began to kill the poor Mormonites and so carved them into saints, which was the very way to establish them. Christians trembled and said, quote, what can this be? We shall have Saddam all over again, unquote. 
But did you read the Times newspaper of Thursday last? You will there see a wonderful instance of how God can scatter the clouds and make them dust of his feet. He has caused to come out of the ground near Salt Lake at Utah thousands of crickets and all kinds of noxious insects that devour the crops, creatures that have not been seen in Utah before, with swarms of locusts having made their appearance, and the people, being so far removed from civilized nations, cannot, of course, carry much corn across the desert, so that they will be condemned to starve, or else separate and break up. It seems to all appearance that the whole settlement of the Mormonites must entirely be broken up and that by an army of caterpillars, crickets, and locusts. It's fascinating. Yeah. That, that is an interesting quote because what he said in terms of making martyrs of the smiths Mm-hmm. I mean, that really is a good question, right? I mean, it's it's martyrs that make religions in the sense, in the you know loose sense of the word. Yeah, people willing to die for something. Right, and he calls the people who killed them idiots or whatever. <laughs> right. And um, Some stupid fellas. Stupid fellas. <laughs> and, you know, so he saw that this would only in, embolden the persistence of the religion. And then he's getting this story in the 1850s about cricket. So when, when I grew up, I heard about the story of the miracle of the, of the goals, right? The state bird of Utah is the California seagull. <laughs> and, um, and the story of they first get here and, you know, the crickets are eating all the crops and there's, you know, they're threatened with starvation. And then all of a sudden the seagulls come and save the day. And then they were saved or whatever. I will put a an article in the show notes for those interested. Um, there's an article from the Utah Historical Quarterly in 1970 called Mormons, Crickets, and Goals, A New Look at an Old Story. That kind of takes on some of the myths of this story. Um, and uh, so not to take it too far away from Spurgeon, but just for those who don't know, um, goals and crickets are, we have accounts from, Explorers like John Fremont, Peter Skeen Ogden, who was actually British, um, before the the LDS got here, uh, records of seagulls and crickets. <laughs> mm. So, like you know, but the story was framed as they just popped up out of nowhere for Spurgeon, right. right? That the crickets that hadn't been seen before popped up, and then in the the false miracle story that I was told as a kid was that the seagulls popped up out of nowhere or whatever. <laughs> when in in fact. Um, you know, what was new here were the, the Mormons, not seagulls or these crickets. By the way, he calls them locusts as well. These things are scary um, because we, we were talking before we hit record, and I don't know the answer to this. Is he getting the initial story or is he just getting reports of it happening slowly? Or, But the, these, these um, I think they're in the Katie did family, but they're called Anibus simplex. These they literally it'll be a square mile and they'll just slowly travel and eat everything. Like they'll, they'll even eat each other. They're cannibalistic. So if one of them gets injured, 
they'll eat them, you know, themselves. They'll eat snakes. They'll eat trees. And typically outbreaks last two to six years. So I just wonder if he's getting reports of that. In the initial reports, though, the, the crops weren't saved, even if they mentioned the seagulls. So they helped, but, you know, it was just a hard place to grow food. And there really was division, though. That's another thing that, that is interesting about him saying, oh, this should lead to division. Because it was so hard to grow food here, not just because of the crickets, but the, the, the real story, the frosts were killing the crops. So they would, they would plant something and it would frost. And um, yeah. that was just as dangerous as these, um, these bugs. But it led to people saying, we're going to starve here. Let's go to California and questioning uh, Brigham Young's inspiration. There's actually a cry. The quote was, we cannot live here away to California. Um, and yep, they, they persisted and, and survived. But right. um, it's just... <laughs> I mean, I could totally believe that. It's so cold. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was yeah interesting, but that um, and I should have said this. It's called the Cricket War of eighteen forty eight. Yeah, so this would have been years after, but yeah, it's just fascinating. Yes, yeah, definitely fascinating. <laughs> you got you got to remember, we said this all fair as well. News didn't travel as quickly. Mm-hmm. There was no Google, no internet, no. Um, YouTube app or anything like that. So nowadays, I can figure out what's happened in England since we hit the record button. Mm-hmm. Not so back then. So right, Max is very thankful for technology. Right. By the way, Spurgeon got to taste a little bit of technology. He flushed the first public toilet <laughs> in London. Did he really? Yeah. Wow. Um. And I, I forget the technical name, but, you know, Bell invented the predecessor to the telephone. You see it in old, old black and white movies, the big, long contraption doohickey that, mm-hmm. that you hold like that. Spurgeon got to talk on one of those. And when he uh, <coughs> heard the voice of the other person on the other side of the city of London... You know what he said? I'm lost in the mystery. <laughs> That's a <laughs> and I, and I think to myself, oh, if only you could see a smartphone. Oh wow! Yeah, uh, I get lost in the mystery of my smartphone every day. <laughs> yeah, I have to get get a nineteen-year-old wow. intern to. Bell me out of my confusion. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So on that quote, we could definitely say Spurgeon had a deep insight into what created the LDS Church's mm-hmm. sustainability, but clearly wrong on his prediction of the end. Unfortunately wrong, <laughs> Cle- I would say. <laughs> clearly wrong. Okay. Yeah. On that part. Were there any others? Uh, two that- more. Okay. So this one... My defend uh, devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But keep in mind, Spurgeon was a devout 19th century Baptist preacher. Why would you expect him to say anything less? Mm-hmm. 
So, one of the most modern pretenders to inspiration is the Book of Mormon. I could not blame you should you laugh outright while I read aloud a page from that Ferrico. Perhaps you know the Proto-Evangelion and other apocryphal New Testament books. It would be an insult to the judgment of the least in the kingdom of heaven to suppose that he could mistake the language of these forgeries for the language of the Holy Ghost. That was delivered on Friday morning, April 25th, 1890. The sermon was entitled, Our Manifesto. Wow. So, strong language, mm-hmm. I know, but you've got to understand evangelicals' commitment to sola scriptura. Yeah, and it's amazing to me that the Proto-Evangelium of James is what it, what he recalls when he's speaking yeah. about the Book of Mormon. Um, <laughs> the interview we did with Jason Wallace on Eastern Orthodoxy, we spent in part two, I believe, significant amount of time into how this yeah this forgery this fiction has corrupted even a historically christian denomination mm-hmm. um and so anyway right. it's just interesting that he just right. he just link, links right to it yep and well, spurgeon was a reader mm-hmm. and Spur, spurgeon would have no doubt read the proto evangelion and uh, I I think he uh, had read at least a page from the Book of Mormon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I uh, I wish we had um, record of any interaction he may have had with LDS missionaries or something like that. There may be. Let me do some research. If if you ever find it, we got to bring you back on because oh, that's just. To me, it's just so fascinating because of the emphasis on England in early LDSism and um, yes. in early Mormonism, and he just happens to be the celebrity preacher at the time. Right, it's just amazing. Yes, um, this one's much shorter from a sermon preached on November six, eighteen fifty-four. So we're back to Young Spurgeon, the Saints' Heritage and Watchword. What shall we say of Mormonism, the haggard superstition of the West? Wow. Keep in mind, the West back then was foreign territory. It's not officially part of the U.S. Um, And uh, even American Christians treated Utah like a foreign mission field. Uh, So when he says the West, he's talking about like an unknown land. He's like saying, he is essentially saying, Mormonism is the pagan religion of this land. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, go away with it. Right, because superstition. It's not of God. Right, would be another filler word for what, idolatry, things like that. The occult. Mm-hmm. You said Spurgeon had a fascination with the West, yeah? Correct. It's just interesting. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's other brothers that have done more research on that than I'm sure it's very, very good. So, <laughs> so yeah, but that's Spurgeon and Mormonism. He did not have a high opinion. No. 
how would you summarize his major complaint about this in any form of false religion? Um, I would summarize it this way. False religions, particularly Mormonism in this context, says things of God and that are from God that are not of God, and God has never really said. Yeah. And that is blasphemous. Yeah.